Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right. We are, we made it. <laughs> we, we made it to close out Revelation. We started this book back on January the 17th of 2021, and we made it. We're here. The last, the last message. I'm sure some of you are like, are we ever going to finish this book? What else are we doing here? But what an amazing study, and really all praise be to God for teaching us and giving us the, the anointing to go through this verse by verse and to do it the right way and really to unlock the depth of God's word. And chapter 22, it is the final word from the Lord, and it's the final promises for his people. It's the culmination of everything. It's the final declaration in the greatest warfare ever waged in humanity. It's Jesus warring on behalf of his people, on his pe- for his people to set up a kingdom that's everlasting and for us to dwell in righteousness with him. And every attempt to keep us from our creator, it's all put to rest here. And chapter 22, we're going to pick up in verse 13 and move on from there, but This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This entire book, remember, is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's who is he? Who is he for all eternity? Who is Jesus really? I mean, who is he really? And I love that it starts out, we're going to start out in verse 13 today, and I I apologize, I forgot to adjust the header in the title of each slide, so Mason can give me a hard time about that later for missing that. That's okay. I gave you that one. So verse 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And this is a, it harkens back, there's seven times in the Bible that God talks about being the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In Isaiah 41:4, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. In Isaiah 44, 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Interesting in this one that there are two different people here. The Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. And we know who that is. That's Jesus. The Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. In Isaiah forty-eight twelve, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. So three times in Isaiah... And then four times in Revelation, Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. In verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And so here 
is the seventh one in, in verse 13 here in chapter 22. I am Alpha and Omega. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Just one more thing on the Alpha and Omega piece. Randy and I were talking this weekend about it, and it's amazing how each of those, the first and the last, seems to be with time and space. Alpha and Omega are letters, so he's the first and the last letter of the law. He is the first and last in the Bible from the beginning all the way to the end. And we're going to look at that in some surprising ways at the end of this. But blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life. The legal right to the tree of life is restored here with eternal fellowship with God. And think about that. We lost that right in Genesis 3 all the way in the beginning. And it's, here it is thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, and Jesus gives us right to that tree again, finally, after all of this time. Now, at the end of this, right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. So what about these gates into the new Jerusalem, the new city? Isaiah 26.2, Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. So if you keep the truth, you get to enter in. Jeremiah 7.2, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Jeremiah seventeen twenty, And say unto them, Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that enter in by these gates. And then in Jeremiah 22, 4, For if ye do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house Kings sitting upon the throne of David. Now that is a fascinating verse. Riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. That's us, the Lord's servants and his people. And we get to enter in to those gates. Psalms 24 is an amazing psalm all about entering into the gates. I know you, when I was a kid, I'm trying to remember, Third Day. Anybody remember that, that band, Third Day? They had a song that was all about this. It was this psalm they sang, King of Glory. And the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall attend, ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. We just keep thinking about all of our kids in here with their hands lifted up on those verses. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up. Everlasting doors. Now, everlasting doors, these are gates that are never going to perish. These are gates that do not go away. This is the new Jerusalem with three gates on each side. Remember, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And if anything, I hope you've seen through this study through Revelation is that Jesus is a warrior king. Yes, he was a humble servant that died for all of us, but he is a warrior king. He is a king and a man of war. And he fights for us. 
He is not coming back to bathe our feet again. He's coming back to rule and to reign with an iron fist. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It's an amazing psalm, all about Jesus coming in through those everlasting gates at, new, at the new city, at New Jerusalem. So in verse 15, for without, so outside the city, for without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I want you to really think about that for a minute. God has a standard. He has a standard. And, you know, you hear people I can't tell you how many, pe- how many people I have conversations with that think that the Lord is just closed-minded, right? Or that, well, he has all these rules and regulations, and I don't really fit into those, and so I don't really want to worship him. The point is God has a standard for holiness, and the standard is Jesus. Now, you don't have to live up to that standard. You have to apply that standard. Praise God that you don't have to meet every one of those requirements, that all you have to do is cry out to the Lord And he adorns you with that standard so that when he looks at you, he doesn't see the fallen you. He sees Jesus. That's what he sees. He sees the perfect son in glory clothing you. And so you you have a standard that you can put on, but then it's about what do you do after you dress with that standard? You know, how much of a relationship do you want with him? Do you want to be in the inner city court sitting with the king? For eternity, or do you want to be outside trying to figure out what's going on? And man, if I just would have given a little more of my life to him, you're gonna have a place there, one side or the other. So, verse 16 I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. So, hear it all the way. The word church hasn't been used since chapter 3. And here, all the way at the end, it's a closing letter to us, the churches. Remember, all the way back in, in chapter 1, what God did was he wrote this letter, and then he, he basically attached it to each of those letters to those seven churches, and he sent it to the churches for them to study and get to know. And it's kind of the closing promises that he's talking to us, the church. This book is for us today. And it's going to be a survival guide for those in the tribulation. Yes, indeed. But right now, while the church is here, this book is for us. He sent his angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Now, to close out this chapter, one thing Randy pointed out to me yesterday, too, while we were talking through this, there's actually seven titles of Jesus in these final verses, which is really cool. Not a coincidence. And the spirit and the bride, that's us. The bride, come and let him hear that heareth say come and let him let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. Jesus implores us seven times in Revelation two and three to hear, and another four times in Matthew thirteen. Remember, we looked at when we finished the letters to the seven churches. We looked at the seven kingdom parables in Matthew thirteen and how they line up one for one to the seven letters to the churches. Each one correlates to those churches in the order of which they're written, which is amazing. And Jesus is saying, if you have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you right now. 
and he's talking to you as a member of the greatest body of Christ to ever walk on the planet, the church. You are a member, you have the highest esteemed privilege of anyone to ever live on this planet. You have it because the Holy Spirit that breathed the world into existence lives in you. Nobody else ever had that privilege until Jesus ascended and the comforter was given. Now he's going to take that comforter home so that he can return. We're going to talk about that later too. Remember in John, he says, I must leave so the comforter can come. Well, the inverse is true. He has to bring the comforter home so that he can return. It's the same, same principle. So are your ears attentive to God? That's the question. Are you actively listening and chasing after the Lord? Your ears, what you take in is what you're going to be in tune to. And don't, don't be led astray. What you listen to matters. If you're not listening to the Lord, you are taking in things that are going to jam the frequency, right? The Holy Spirit wants you in tune to him. Not, the enemy wants to disrupt that. So he's going to try everything he can to get, to get you not listening to him. Revelation 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, this is Jesus speaking, and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now remember in the church of Laodicea, this was Jesus' plea to that church. This is us today. This is the church age we are in today, is the church of Laodicea. The plea is Jesus is outside the church knocking, asking for anybody to open. It's the, the call is to the individual, not to the church, which is an indictment on the condition of the church that's lukewarm. Remember in the, to Laodicea, he's going to spew them out of his mouth because they're so lukewarm. In verse 18, For I testify unto you every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. There's a, there's a group, I don't remember how many decades ago this was, in the 90s, I think, but it was called the, I think it was called the Jesus Seminar, and they were out on the West Coast somewhere. They would sit around and vote on what Jesus said or didn't say, and every time I read this verse, I think about that. Can you imagine sitting around and trying to debate, well, did Jesus really say that or not? Let's take that out of the Bible, let's do this, and try to piece it around God has a stern, stern indictment on people that do that. So God, God preserved his word for us. It's his word. It's not ours, right? I don't want to sit around and say, did Jesus say that or not? If it's there, then we need to know it. In verse 19, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So there's a principle here in these two verses. Do not add or take away from God's word. That's the principle. And it's, it's given two other times in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4.2, speaking to Israel and to us today, you shall not add unto the word which I commanded you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Okay, in, in chapter 12, verse 32, What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So don't add to it, and don't take away from it. That's the plea from the Lord. You've got to stick right down the fairway of what did God say. Don't try to veer and add to what he said. And we're going to look at a couple examples that we've 
mentioned a few times in here. But what is God's warning here? Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Wow, that's a, that's a bold statement from God. But his people are destroyed for not knowing his word. And when you look at the last... 40 plus years in the church, we have for the most part not taught God's word. And it's the reason why everything in the world is going on that is going on today is because the church is allowing it. If we would stand up and take the authority that we have in God's word, none of this would be happening. This would, we would just stop this as soon as it began because we'd be speaking in the name of Jesus. We would understand the word of God. We wouldn't let them try to indoctrinate our children and confiscate our kids at school. We wouldn't teach lies and allow them to teach lies in school. We would stand up as a church boldly for Jesus and fight that. And it wouldn't even, it would stop. But the church hasn't, hasn't studied God's word for a long time, frankly. And that's the warning in Hosea 4.6. His people are destroyed because of it. That's the only way, again, to build our faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So remember, why is this so important? Do not add or take away from God's word. Remember how Eve fell. She added to God's word. God never said, do not touch of the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat of it. But her response to Satan, Hasatan, Lucifer at that time was, well, God said, don't touch it or eat it. He never said that. So she added to his word. And because of that, she was deceived. She fell and then all of us with her because she didn't stay right between what God said, so she was led astray. King Zedekiah in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Second Kings, two different prophets were coming to him, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and one of them said, You'll, you're going to die in Babylon, and the other one said, you're never going to see Babylon. And Zedekiah scoffed and laughed and just looked at them and said, you guys can't even get your story straight. Am I going to die there or am I never going to see it? What is the truth? Your prophets are liars. I don't like God's word. I'm not listening. And so sure enough, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar came, put his eyes out to blind him, and then drug him to Babylon where he died. And so both were true. Both were prophets of the Lord speaking God's word, but he thought it was a contradiction. And so there's a lot of lessons there. We've got to stick with what God's word is saying and don't add to it. Don't take away from it. In verse 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Remember, that, is, that word is once it begins, I'm coming very, very rapidly. It's where we get the word tachometer for vehicles today. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And then verse 21, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Hallelujah. And that closes the greatest love story ever penned, the Bible. That verse closes it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Like I mentioned, we started this journey back on January the 17th, almost one year ago today, and we had a couple of, couple of messages where Mason just rocked the planet with some, some testimonies, and then we, I think we missed a day for weather maybe, but so cool, very, very cool. Where do we go from here? And what about the word of God? Jesus is the word. 
Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, the Word was God. In John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus became flesh on our behalf, the Word of God. And what I'm hoping you get from this study is that Jesus is the entire Bible. He is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the letters are only read. He is from the beginning to the end. Genesis 1-1, all the way to Revelation 22. Jesus is on every page. And we're going to look at a few examples of that to close out this study. That What I'm, I'm hoping as we go through these, you will get a sense of urgency to get into the Word of God and build your faith. If you didn't have it before from this study, I'm hoping that this will light a fire under you to start 2022. So Jesus is the Bible. Look at John 1.45. They knew this. They knew this then. They only had the Old Testament when Jesus was walking the earth. And they knew this. In John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. How many of you could go to a Jewish brother and show him Jesus out of the law of Moses? Think about that. That's the, we got a hand up in the back. Awesome. Okay. That's, that's the challenge. And I want you to get this out of this. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Jesus was made under the law. So from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus was made under that. Hebrews 10.7, then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. That's a quote from Jesus in Psalms 40, verse 7. In the volume of the book, it's written of me, Jesus says in Psalms 40. The volume of the book. So all of it, all of it speaks of Jesus. 77% of the Bible by word count is the Old Testament. So in the volume of the book, it's written of him. 602,585 words in the Hebrew, 180,552 in the Greek. You add those up, the Old Testament is 77% of the Bible. Just incredible. What about in the words of Jesus himself, John 5, 39? You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. So Jesus is telling the Israelites, you look all over the Bible thinking you have eternal life in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. But I'm telling you, they testify of me. And when God laid this on my heart almost 12 years ago now at this point, it changed everything in my life. When he, when he gave me the lens and the filter to see this, that Jesus is on every page of the Bible, you just have to know how to find him. Then it will, it will change how you read the word of God in what you do with your studies every day. In John 5, 45, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus even says Moses wrote about him. Jesus declares that. Matthew 5, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, 
one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. If you look on that diagram, the yacht is like an apostrophe. It's the smallest blemish in the Hebrew language. The, the tittle is, makes it a resh to a dalith, for example. It's that extension just to the right that I have circled there on that drawing. So what Jesus is saying is that the smallest detail in the Bible speaks of me. The smallest, minute detail, it all links to him. So the word of God, the main focal point of this entire message system is a single person. That person is Jesus. In Revelation, as we closed out this book, it is nothing more than the unveiling of that person, who he is. History itself is cataloged around his walking in the flesh the first time, B.C. and A.D. All of history walks and pivots on that point of time that Jesus walked this earth. Our Redeemer, King, Messiah, Savior, he's on every page of the Bible. Proverbs 25.2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. So God has concealed these things in the word of God, and it's our duty and honor as kings of his to search them out. Now, what does God hold above his very name? Psalms 138.2, his word, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Think about that. The name of God is here. The word is a step above. Now, why is that? It's because the word is the legal contract that God has for fellowship for you and I. His, if he can't have us, his name is worthless. But because he can have us, his word, that method, Jesus, is held above that. The creator of the universe, he takes his word serious. So again, our prayer through this study has been that you have a renewed urgency and excitement for the word of God. It will transform your marriage, your friendships, your job, your time, and most importantly, your relationship with the Lord. It's time to get back to spending time with Jesus. On Friday morning, we had Carol Ward here speaking, which was incredible, by the way, if you missed it. Just incredible. Her testimony is from Africa. But she said something that really hit home, I think, and was cool to listen to. She said, information with no action is deception. So when you receive this information from the word of God and you do nothing with it, you're literally looking in the mirror and deceiving yourself, saying, I don't need to do anything with that. That was the path she was going down. But information with action is transformation. And so when you receive things like this and you go and you act on it, it transforms your life. And that was, it was really cool to hear her transformational stories of acting out that call all over Africa. Just incredible, incredible moves of God. Um, I'm hoping, I think she's here for the next couple of months in the States, but I'm going to reach out to her and see if she has time to actually come here one Sunday and share with everybody. It was awesome. But where does Jesus show up the first time? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And then John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh. Remember, we've talked about this. I, I love to throw out these physics tidbits all over these studies. But at Colossians 1.16. For by him were all things created, him is Jesus. That there in heaven, that, there, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, 
or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. In Hebrews 1, 3, the, that word consist, remember in the Greek, means held together. Hebrews 1, 3, upholding all things by the word of his power. And we've, I've showed you guys, or I've mentioned it before, that it's they've, they've figured out that it is the voice of Jesus. Well, well, they don't attribute it to Jesus. It's sound waves that hold every atom in the universe together. They've been trying to find what is the glue that holds these atoms together because there's so much space between the nucleus and these electrons spinning around at a high rate of speed. What holds that together? And there's a link there. You can check it out from Discover Magazine. But they discovered it was sound waves. It's Jesus. The answer is Jesus, his word. Where, where does God declare war through Jesus? <clears throat> Genesis 3.15. <clears throat> and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God declares war in Genesis 3.15 through the seed of the woman. Now that's, it's not just biologically incorrect. The seed's not in the woman. The seed is in the man, but it's predictive of a virgin birth, which is so amazing when you really think about all the way back in Genesis 3, God was predicting a virgin birth, and through that, the head of the serpent would be crushed. So remember, he says, you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. That's Jesus, all the way back in Genesis 3. And we see that Jesus is going to be at war on our behalf. God drew the battle lines. Look at Adam as a type of Jesus. You fast forward a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's a title of Jesus, the last Adam. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Now, how is Adam a foreshadowing or type of Jesus well, 1 Timothy 2.14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So we know Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was because she added to his word. Adam was not deceived. He willingly joined her. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He willingly joins us in our predicament to rescue us, to join us. Now, I didn't add this in the, in the notes, but I heard a, I'm looking into this because I'm trying to search the scriptures like Acts 17.11 to prove these things are true. But I heard a, a prophet a few, maybe a month ago now or so, but talk about how on the third day of recreation in Genesis 1, that everything that the seed was within, God created and he put into the earth. And the point he was making is that it wasn't just fruits and vegetables and trees, but it was also man. And then three days later, Jesus, or the Lord, really stretched himself out over man and pulled him up out of the grave. So it was three days and three nights. And indeed, when you read Genesis 1, those do line up. The third day is when God created everything that has the seed in itself. The sixth day is when he pulled man out of the, out of the dust of the earth, which is amazing. If you really think about that, even that foreshadowing Jesus in the tomb for three days and three nights, all those centuries later. But what about the covering? Remember, Eve is, Eve is deceived. She falls. Adam joins her. Genesis 3, 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, that they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves 
coverings. In Genesis 3, verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. That's animal skin. What was God teaching them? All the way from the beginning, God's teaching them that it's only by the shedding of innocent blood that they would be covered. So Jesus being foreshadowed all the way back at the beginning. Now we've, we've had this one a couple times in here, but a predictive genealogy. Remember, these are translated in our Bible. They're translated, they're transliterated, I mean, how they sound. If they were translated, it would be, what does the name mean? And you look at the predictive genealogy from Genesis 5, Adam to Noah. You've got Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And when you translate those names to what do they really mean, you have the gospel laid out in the genealogy all the way back in Genesis 5. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort, or Noah's name means rest. But you have the, the gospel all the way back in the beginning. All the way back in Genesis 5, you've got the gospel of Jesus laid out by the names of the first 10 people on the earth. Just incredible. So what about the ark? You know, the ark of Noah. There's only one ark and only one door to the ark. Remember, Jesus said, I am the door. God chose when that door was closed, and then he waited seven days in Genesis 7, verse 4. Noah preached about the flood for 120 years. Remember in Genesis 6, 3, God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. His days shall be 120 years. It was 120 years to the day later that the flood happened. And you can pick that up in 2 Peter 2, 5 also. God was patient, and he gave his people a chance. The ark was open to all, but forced on none. And it's the same thing today. When that door closed, all theological debate ended with it right then. And I'm telling you, when the rapture closes and, and that trumpet blows and that door in heaven is, is closed that is opened up when Jesus descends to bring us home, all theological debate is going to end on about the rapture. Are we going to go home? Is it pre-tribulational? Is it post-tribulational? What is going on? Everything's going to end. In that second, the whole world is going to know that Jesus is king and that his word was truth. In Genesis 8, 4, the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. So if you think, again, when you have that filter, if every verse speaks of God, speaks of Jesus somehow, how does it, why does it matter when the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat? Why would God want you to know? Well, he gives you the date the 17th day of the month, on the seventh month. So there's actually two Jewish calendars. In Exodus, after the Passover, God institutes a religious calendar. So the month Abib becomes the month Nisan. And that's in Exodus 12, 1, 12, 18 through 19. He gives them this calendar. Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of the seventh month. He was in the tomb for three days and three nights. He exited the tomb on the anniversary of Noah exiting the ark, on the 17th day of the seventh month, Jesus walked out of that tomb. The exact same day, he opened the door as the ark was resting on Ararat, and Noah's new beginning on planet earth began. It's just incredible that God linked all of that all the way from the beginning. So if you look at the, you could fast forward a little bit in Genesis, the offering of a son, as the Hebrews call in the Akedah, it's uh, Abraham's offering of Isaac. In Genesis 22.2, 2, 
And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Now, why would God say his only son? He had Ishmael at this point. Isaac wasn't his only son, but he was the son of promise. That's the key. He was the son that was always promised, and through him, the Messiah would, would come to the earth and conquer on our behalf. Whom thou lovest, that sounds familiar, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of, your only son. That's the key right there, that something special is going on. In Genesis 22, 4, then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Isaac was dead to Abraham for three days. Think about that. Jesus was dead to the, the father for three days. So was Isaac. Took him three days on this journey. Then Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Abraham saw this sacrifice as a type of worship, not a sacrifice, a worship, worship to the king. And we will, look what he says, and come again to you. Now Abraham's telling them, I'm taking my son Isaac up this mountain. I'm going to sacrifice him because that's what God is telling me to do. But God has promised me that he will have children, and he had no children yet. So no matter what happens, he has to resurrect Isaac. And he and I are going to come back down to you, back down the mountain. So Abraham knew that God was putting him in a corner to test him. Do you trust me? Do you trust what I'm telling you to do, to sacrifice your son, whom is supposed to have a seed afterwards, which the Messiah will come through, will come again to you? Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. So Isaac is carrying the wood for a sacrifice on his back. Now think about that. This was not, despite what all the Sunday school coloring books show, this was not a little child. This was a young man. He probably was 32, 33 years old at this point. This was a young man carrying wood for a sacrifice on his back up, to, up this mountain to the place where he would be offered. It's all a foreshadowing of Jesus. I heard a, a great prophet recently, too, talk about that, about taking up your cross daily. And whether you carry it, you, th you think Jesus, how he had it, the crossbar was kind of up vertically. But whether you have it that way or horizontal, it would limit what doors you could walk into. If you really carried it daily, right, you couldn't walk through certain doorways. Doorways leading into places of sin, places of where unholy activities are happening, you would, you would have to lay the cross down to walk through some of those doors. And I thought that was a really powerful image of making sure you keep that cross daily because it will limit where you walk. And Abraham said, my son, God will, look what he says, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide himself not just the substitute ram, but he's going to actually provide himself as a lamb for the offering. He's predicting Jesus right there. How did Abraham know? You know, it's not, it's not before that, but how did he know? Abraham knew. Somehow Abraham knew. Now, when you look at where they traveled, this is a topographic map of Jerusalem and Mount Zion, Mount of Olives off to the east. 
and topographic, topographic maps just show the elevation change in the earth, right? If you took a topographic map of the Wichita Mountains, it would show the highest point as Mount, as Mount uh, Scott down there, just southwest of Oklahoma City. But this is showing, you see to the north, this is where they went. There's Salem, or Jerusalem, okay, or Ophel. There's the threshing floor of Aruna. And then the peak is where the Akedah happened. The, the Mount Moriah is what God said. Go to Mount Moriah. Now, when you zoom in there, there's the threshing floor. You keep going up the mountain, and it's a place that we call Gol- Golgotha. It's the same place that Jesus was offered on our behalf. And look at, I don't, maybe you can't see the numbers on there, but it was 777 meters above sea level, three sevens, the perfect spot on planet Earth for Jesus to be offered, 777 meters above sea level, the place where Jesus was offered and the foreshadowing of Jesus being offered as Isaac was taken there. So after that, the substitute ram, remember there's the ram in the, in the thorns, Isaac does not show up in the text for a while. The Holy Spirit leaves him out of the Bible for a little bit. Now, why is that? Because Abraham, a type of the father, makes a marriage for his son. So Matthew 22, 2, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. The unnamed servant, a type of the Holy Spirit who does not speak of himself, but takes the things of the bridegroom to win the bride, Remember, Isaac came back down the mountain with Abraham, but he's not in the Bible. And instead, Abraham petitions his servant, an unnamed servant named Eliezer, to go get a bride on behalf of his son, Isaac. Remember, he goes to find Rebekah in that whole event. Now, Eliezer, he's unnamed in this story. You can find his name a few chapters before, but that's a type of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 13. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. And his name is Eliezer, literally meaning comforter, which is another link there for you, that this, this guy is taking the, the type of the Holy Spirit in this story. So the unnamed servant, a type of the Holy Spirit, enriches the bride with the bridegroom's gifts. They're the gifts of the Spirit, but who do they emulate? They all emulate Jesus. And that's all in Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 12, Genesis 24. All the goods of the servant's master were in his hand. That's from Genesis 24, 10. Representing the sufficiency and provision of joining the bridegroom's family. So the Holy Spirit does that for you and I. When you became a member of the church, he was bringing all of the goods of the Father's house to you. You have access to all of it. You have that signet ring that gives you access to everything that the Father has, including 10 camels. It's amazing how they, they pulled it, the Holy Spirit pulls this little detail out that he brought 10 camels, which aligns with the 10 virgins in Matthew 25, 1 that come forth to meet the bridegroom. So that whole story, okay, look at this, those additional parallels. The servant a type of the Holy Spirit brings the bride to the meeting with the bridegroom in Romans 8 and then the rapture at 1 Thessalonians 4. The Holy Spirit is going to bring us in the rapture to meet the bridegroom, to meet Jesus in the air. Rebecca, as a type of the church, represents the ecclesia, the called out bride of Christ. That's in Genesis 24, 16, 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, Ephesians 5. The bride, even though not having seen Isaac, who's a type of Jesus, 
loves him through the testimony of the unnamed servant. You love Jesus because of the testimony the Holy Spirit is putting in your life daily. And we're going to come to a point where we see him face to face in the rapture. And we haven't beforehand. Actually see him in the flesh to see him. Isaac, a type of the bridegroom, goes out to meet and receive his bride. So as the, remember, as the bride's coming home, he runs into the field to meet her halfway. That's exactly what Jesus does in the rapture. He descends from heaven with that shout to meet the church in the air. Pretty amazing. The son had to leave for the comforter to be given. In John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I not go away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Okay, that's Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit. The comforter in the Greek, it also really means one who pleads another's case before a judge. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing for you on your behalf constantly. The opposite is also true. The comforter must be removed for Jesus to return. And the sufficiency of God's provision for his bride in Matthew 6.25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. Not yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? This is the sufficiency for you, the bride, the church, the body of Christ. Matthew 7, Or what man is there of you in whom, if the son ask bread, he will give him a stone? I love that the Lord used the word stone. Obviously, for all of you in here that are dads, if your son asked of anything, you would never give him a stone in place of what he's asking for. But God not only provided, he also gave a stone. The stone that the builders rejected became the headstone of the corner, the rock that is Jesus. It's a play on words, which is amazing. So Jesus is going to present a clean and spotless church, an unashamed bride. And I hope through this study that you seriously will take your walk in the word of God with a renewed sense of fervency and urgency Look at Ephesians 5. Get serious about the word of God. Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That is how we are to love our spouse. If you're in here and you're married and you're the man of the household, you are to sacrifice everything for your wife. Everything. Put her first above all else. And your marriage will be enriched, I promise you that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The only way for you to get on the sanctification road is to study the word of God and to let it wash over you daily and cleanse you and be sanctified. Find things in your life that you have not submitted to Jesus yet, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That word spot in the Greek means a moral blemish. Okay, if you have something in your life that you have not submitted to Jesus, I'm imploring you to go home and do it today and submit it to him and lay it at his feet. First John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
All of us are a work in progress. We're all on the sanctification road together, right? But the way you get further down that road is to be in the word of God. And wrinkle, that word wrinkle, just think about that. If you're to be spotless and blameless and without wrinkle, how do you get a wrinkle? Well, you fold to the world. That's how. You get a wrinkle by folding to the world's demands, the world telling you what you should be, the world putting undue expectations on you, on your family, on your children. Are you folding to the world? That is the question. And all of this is the mission statement he gave us for New City Church, to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. He is going to present a spotless church to the Father and to himself. And I really want all of us in this room to be a part of that. So get into the word of God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's what it is. It's important because without it, it is impossible to please him, Hebrews 11:6. And how do you get it? Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And you're supposed to do it daily to be like the Bereans, Acts 17:11. Search it daily. And I threw this in here as a last call for us as his church and all of you at home watching. Listen, when Gideon, when the Lord filtered out down to the 300 for Gideon, at the very last time, he said, take all the men down by the river, the ones that lap out of their hand, separate from the ones that bend down to lap out of the water. Okay? And he separated them. The ones that bowed the knee, he said, were not worthy to go fight in this war. And I, I said this last week, but I want to make sure you guys heard this. The ones that bowed the knee were not fit for war. Just think about that. You know, are you bowing the knee to the enemy, to the world, to what the world is calling and the weight of the world? You don't have to. What you do is you take that weight off that yoke, and you lay it at the feet of Jesus. That's what you do. And you don't bow the knee. Then you pick up the sword of the Spirit, the living water, right, in your hand. You've got to hold it in your hand, and then you are fit for war because the Spirit of the living God is the Word. It's the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit from Ephesians 6. So those that were fit for war learned how to take the living water in their hand and practiced with it. They trained with it. They drank of that water by taking it in their hand. Then you are fit for war. And that's exactly what God is doing in this day and age. In 2022, there is a war brewing. There's a war, a final war. The war for the hearts of us, the hearts and minds of men, the war for the hearts and minds of your children, the war for your family, the war for, you name it, the warfare is on full tilt right now. And I hope that all of you go out there and you recognize what is going on in this world because I'm, I am praying that God gives you eyes to see that warfare that is all around you. We should be praying for our schools. We should be praying for our children. We should be praying for our spouses, for one another, for this church for the families that are here, the families that couldn't be here. You know, I hope that you guys notice. I mean, pray for them. Pray. If you don't see the family at church on a Sunday, reach out to them and just say, hey, we missed you this morning. How can we pray for you? That's a way to strengthen one another and to lean on one another. 
I've been in churches my whole life where I could miss three weeks in a row and not hear from anybody. Not a single soul would even send me a message to say, hey, we missed you and Randy. What, are you guys okay? I'm, I'm hoping that God is forging relationships in here centered on the word of God that all of you feel like your family with one another because that's how I feel. And as a kid that didn't have a big family growing up, God has blessed us exponentially with all of you. So thank you. And if you're not saved, you're watching this online, it's really simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what it's all about. In Isaiah 1, 18, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what Jesus does. Anything in your life that you hadn't submitted to him, he takes it and makes it white and brand new. The Father never sees that again. In Hebrews, he not only forgives, he forgets. He, he doesn't remember it. He doesn't recall it any longer. So if you're being attacked by something from your past, that is the enemy trying to lie to you and tell you, look back, look back. Remember Lot's wife? She wasn't to look back. When she looked back, she became a pillar of salt because she was living. The enemy was taking her back to that past life that she was just delivered out of. So don't let the enemy do that. Look forward. Put your hand to the plow and move forward. So with that, I'm going to close us in prayer. The next couple of weeks, I think the next study we're going to do is Hebrews. So we're going to go through the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is structured around five warnings to the believer. And it's going to be really powerful. So we've studied this whole, this most incredible book of the Bible that takes you into every other book. And for us, the big takeaway is we're not going to be here from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, until we come back with Jesus in chapter 19. And remember, he said, I'm coming and my reward is with me. Okay, how, what does that mean? How do you not fall astray to the wiles and the lies of the enemy? That's what Hebrews is all about. So I'm hoping the application out of it will be a blessing for all of us that, okay, the Lord is from Ephesians 5. He wants to present this spotless, blameless church how do you get there? What do you do? That's what Hebrews is going gonna, is gonna to walk us through verse by verse. It'll be really fun. But I think we may have two sessions where we kind of do a special one-off study on something that I really want to ground everybody in, in terms of Bible, the Bible translations and something out of Genesis. So we may do that before we start Hebrews. We'll see. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we just love you so much. God, we praise your name. I thank you, God, for this incredible study through the book of Revelation. God, be with us as we leave this place. Help us to, every single day, take up our cross and follow you to be a spotless and blameless church without wrinkle that does not fold to the world, and that we are looking up. In Luke 21, when we see all of the stage setting being put on the earth, look up for our redemption draweth nigh. And God, we praise you for that promise that you have a place, a forever home that you left in John 14 to, to prepare for us, the church, as your bride. We love you, Lord. Be with us as we leave this place and give us discernment, give us direction, lay on our hearts how to pray for our families and our kids and how to move forward in this world, warring for you and to redeem the land, to take back the land. 
that the enemy is trying to get a foothold of. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.